Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. I'm Hal Whitman. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, local economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today we're very excited to be joined by Andrew Taylor. Taylor is professor of political science at North Carolina State University, and he was an expert witness for the legislative defendants in NC League of Conservation Voters v. Hall and in Harper v. Hall. The issues in those state redistricting disputes are now before the U.S. Supreme Court in the case Moore v. Harper. For our winter 2023 issue, Andrew authored an essay about this case, Moore v. Harper, which the Supreme Court will decide whether and when state judges can step in to draw congressional district maps. The case also takes up the so-called independent state legislature theory. That issue is nothing less than the traditional model of American redistricting, he writes, which the people's representatives, not partisan activists and courts, craft district maps. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, So yeah, as I just mentioned there and kind of summarizing your piece, we want to start with this idea of the independent state legislature theory, or we might call it ISL throughout here. Um, But, you know, before I read your piece, this was not something I knew a lot about, I'll admit. Um, I think you describe it as as a formerly obscure legal doctrine that has now been widely discussed in uh, Washington in the popular press. So just to start off with, uh, what exactly is this ISL thing, um, and how did it become involved in this Supreme Court case, Moore v. Harper? Well, the the independent state um, legislature doctrine or theory is the argument that owned at the state level, only state legislatures, and not... Uh, anything else, not state constitutions, um, ha- are able to uh, set the rules for federal elections. Mm-hmm. To be clear, we're talking about federal elections here, so we're talking about congressional and presidential elections. Right. We're not talking about state elections because we're talking about the U.S. Constitution here. Um, and that authority, proponents of the approach argue, uh, comes from two places in the Constitution. Um, in Article 1, Section 4, the Constitution reads, The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Then it goes on to say Congress could make rules that revise that, but it gives the, the proponents, say, explicitly this authority to the state legislatures, mm-hmm. not state constitutions or governors. Mm-hmm. And then also in Article 2, Section 1 here with regards to the election of the president, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. And we, we know that equal to the whole number of senators and representatives that they have. Mm-hmm. So those are the two parts of the Constitution that advocates say uh, really uh, is a foundation of the independent state legislature theory. And... Um, it has become kind of wrapped up in popular discourse for reasons sort of not directly related to my essay in National Affairs. I mean, people have become interested in this because they think that it is a sort of way of having a, a, another January the 6th after mm-hmm. the, the 2024 election, right. uh, where there is essentially a dispute over uh, where, who uh, states electors will vote for because, you know, you may have a candidate who would 
win the popular vote in a state, but state legislature can then direct the state's electors to vote for his or her opponent. Um, that and that's where it's really been injected into popular discourse because of, of, of its ramifications for the presidential election. Given how sensitive we are to this stuff now after January sixth, but I'm interested in it uh, as an argument with regards to um, redistricting um, and the drawing of, of congressional district lines by by the states. So, Andy, as you say, virtually everyone who talks about ISL is mainly concerned with the potential for it to be used by state election administrators to manipulate presidential electors and overturn the will of voters. And as you say, there's usually talk about January 6th and the precedent of that. But as you've mentioned, you decided to focus uh, not on that, but on its implications for redistricting. Uh, So if you could tell us, why why was that? Why, Why did you... I guess, zero in on the implications for redistricting specifically? Well, obviously, it's an area that I'm very interested in and, and have um, a little bit of expertise in. You mentioned in the introduction about my role as an expert witness um, at the st- in the state-level case um, when what is now Harper versus Moore um, has been consolidated and, and, and run up to the um, Supreme Court uh, when that was uh, down in the state trial court. Um, but but my my principal interest is that redistricting traditionally there's a sort of an American model of redistricting, which is that state legislatures redraw every every ten years after the decennial census mm-hmm. with the new data that they're given, redraw district lines, both state legislature, both bodies of state legislature, and their U.S. House lines. Uh, so that each uh, district is essentially equal in size by population. And that is sort of in the tradition, um, and it's seen as a a sort of central feature of the American uh, democratic model. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that there have been a a sizable history now of uh, political argument and legal challenges to that, um, and there are a lot of people who see real problems with that model, not least and particularly recently with a focus on what is often called partisan gerrymandering and the idea that in state legislatures, majority parties are drawing these maps when, when time comes in order to advance their collective partisan interests. Right. And really what that means is get as many members of their party elected to the state legislature or the U.S. House as they possibly can. And and what I think is particularly interesting about this case and the fact that it's a North Carolina case, and you mentioned, of course, I'm in North Carolina, um, is that the the Republican leadership in the General Assembly, uh, who are are now appealing the the state Supreme Court decision because the maps were overturned um, at the state Supreme Court level, are now arguing on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court mm-hmm. that um, they, the, this ISL theory applies, and therefore that at least with regards to the congressional districts, we should reaffirm that model, that traditional model. Now, it's not coincidental that it's North Carolina because North Carolina is the only state in the union 
where redistricting for both uh, Congress and state legislature, the, the responsibility is given fully to the state legislature by its constitution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I'm, I think this is particularly important because if um, in, in this case, um, the, 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 the Republican General Assembly, the, the Moore Party, in this case at the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, loses, effectively that's sort of a last stand for that traditional redistricting model. Mm-hmm. Because if you can't do, if, the general, if a, a state legislature cannot redistrict uh, on its own uh, without interference by other institutions in North Carolina, then it can't do it anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Annie, I think you may have mentioned this, but is it right that North Carolina is the only state where its constitution says the legislature is the only kind of body with a role in redistricting? Is, is that the only state where that's the case? Yes. Yeah, so there are a, um, a variety of different ways of doing this. Um, so you, many, many of your listeners are probably familiar that a number of states have now handed over the responsibility for this um, explicitly to commissions. Um, right. They're often independent. That is, uh, they don't have legislators in them. Sometimes they do have legislators in them. They're always bipartisan. Mm-hmm. And these commissions can either sort of draw the maps themselves or they have some fundamentally important role in the process. There are a number of states that are like that. Um, and increasingly, states are adopting that. So Virginia, for example, has done it pretty recently with mixed results, some some people say. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a good example of a recent innovation or a state that's recently innovated in that way. Then there are um, states where in the Constitution itself, even though the legislature has significant influence over the process, the state Constitution directs the legislature to avoid uh, what we would call gerrymandering or, or partisan manipulation of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, states like Ohio have these provisions. Missouri does. Florida's constitution, for example, says something along the lines of no apportionment plan or individual district shall be drawn with the intent to favor or disfavor a political party. So that's pretty, you know, that seems like there's a bar to traverse there for the, for the Florida state legislature when it's redistricting. Other states um, will have a redistricting process that is the same as regular legislation. So that means that the legislature will write up the, the map, but the governor has a veto. Yeah. And obviously this brings the governor to the table, particularly during divided partisan government. That means that both parties are going to have to negotiate often over maps before they become law. It's only in North Carolina where there's no gubernatorial veto at all. There's nothing in the Constitution that restricts what the General Assembly does. There's no independent commission. And yes, just like any other state, North Carolina legislators are beholden to federal law. But absent, you know, um, taking into account that, there's n- there are no other restrictions on on how they should draw. And and so this is the place where a state legislature should be freest to do redistricting. Mm. So Andy, you mentioned partisan gerrymandering just then, and it's interesting, and you kind of give a bit of the history of this in in your essay, how 
complaints about North Carolina's legislative and congressional maps have in the past focused a lot on racial inequality. But today, in contrast, you've documented how uh, Democrats and their legal allies are increasingly pivoting to allege that districts are being drawn with partisan bias and that the North Carolina Supreme Court has gotten involved. And you may have mentioned actually how they ruled the state maps drawn after the 2020 census unconstitutional because they were supposedly gerrymandered in a, in a partisan manner. And yeah, so and even though the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, that is ruled in, uh, I think, Rucho v. Common Cause, that the court could not weigh in on political matters like partisan gerrymandering claims, the, the North Carolina Supreme Court said that judges could do so. And the state Supreme Court also raised the possibility, I think, that laws enacted by lawmakers who are elected under illegally gerrymandered district plans should be invalidated. So if you could uh, tell us more about these interventions from the state Supreme Court and how they led to Moore v. Harper. Yes. So, you know, you might think it'd be very difficult for the state Supreme Court to rule that uh, maps drawn by the North Carolina General Assembly constituted unfair partisan gerrymander because of my answer to the previous question. Well, they did. Um, and, and a lower court had done so previously, actually, in 2018. Um, and and the General Assembly had actually complied with that ruling and, and redrawn maps for the General Assembly. And they, I think they did, largely did that because they realized there was going to be another round of redistricting anyway after the 2020 census. And why have a protracted fight over that then? Why not wait until the beginning of the new decade? And that's, of course, what has happened. So how did the Supreme Court do this in North Carolina? Well, they took several provisions within the North Carolina Constitution and said that the maps violated them. So, And these are all in Article 1 of the state constitution. One of them was this idea of free elections. Um, that the North Carolina state constitution states that, you know, elections in North Carolina should be free. So basically, they argued these maps violate that provision. They don't allow for free elections. Um, I, in the essay, I get into why I think that's a, to say the very least, a contorted argument. Um, but they said that. They said this is clearly doesn't make elections unfree. Yeah. Uh, they also picked up on provisions within uh, Article 1 of the state constitution on freedom of assembly and freedom of speech. And they said again that these maps were in violation of those provisions of of the uh, state constitution. And again, in the national affairs piece, I sort of argue that seems a little bit um, acrobatic of them to, to, to make that claim, but, but they did. And then there's an equal protection provision uh, in the state constitution that they said this violates. And this is, I think this is interesting. Now I don't focus on this much on the, in the essay, but this of course echoes more questions of racial equality than partisan equality traditionally in American political culture. You know, thinking specifically to the provision in the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And again, they say this is a violation of equal protection. Mm. So together, those things make them say, look, 
um, these maps um, are, are unconstitutional. Um, and it's because of the appeal here of um, ISL that it's the the debate over the U.S. House map that's really drawn everybody's attention because obviously that's the, the those are the federal elections rather yeah. than the, the state elections. But they they've used this provision on um, uh, the congressional map and the state leg- these provisions to declare congressional map and state legislative maps unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, Andy, uh, you, you note this in your piece. Uh, I'm going to read this quote here. Um, the North Carolina Supreme Court appears no less partisan institution than its legislature, with candidates nominated by parties and running elections and party labels. Its justices have as much personal interest in congressional campaigns and elections as do state legislators. In 2020, three of the Democratic nominees for the U.S. House of North Carolina had been judges. Two of them had sat on the state Supreme Court. And again, I guess this is something where, you know, it, it varies by state how the members of the Supreme Court are either, you know, appointed or elected. But I guess it's worth noting in the, in the one state where the legislature technically has control redistricting, the Supreme Court is, is sort of acting as a partisan actor here. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah. And, and so this is really interesting, right? One of the arguments made for why, you know, it's always a bit problematic to have legislators draw district maps, particularly, of course, state maps, mm-hmm. is that they're, they're effectively drawing their own districts or the districts that they want to run in. Yeah. And this strikes us, I think, just intuitively as a, as a real kind of conflict of interest. Um, and a lot of people think, well, that's why it is proper for the courts to be extremely assertive in these matters, because, you know, we need even handedness in these kinds of issues. And if we if a court should see any anything approximating bias um, and the uh, manifestation of self-interest in this process by legislators, we, we, we need the courts in there sorting it out. And I think my, my point there was basically to say that, of course, in in North Carolina, at least, and, and as you're right in saying, it's not the case in every state, but in North Carolina, uh, judges are elected in partisan elections. And in fact, we have a, a, a history of um, judges running in legislative races after they leave the bench. Uh, so I, I try to make the point that they seem to be as self-interested in, in this as, as legislators are. The principal difference is, is that legislators have the constitutional authority mm-hmm. to draw these district mm-hmm. lines and, and judges don't. Um, so so that, that was the point I was going to make there. With regards to the previous question, I remember now I didn't answer the second part of the previous question. That was this summer, the court also, um, and, and, and by the way, a little bit of history here. So uh, before the November election this year, or last year in 2022, the court was majority. We've got a seven-member Supreme Court. The court was a majority Democrat. And so there were four Democrats, three Republicans on the court. After the election, uh, two the Democrats lost two of those seats, and now it's a 5-2 Republican court. Okay. But right at the end of, um, of the court's previous term, before the election, uh, the court ruled that um, against uh, or, or brought up the argument, um, and it's not and it's not entirely clear what the ramifications of what they ruled were. But they brought up the argument that um, 
constitutional amendments that were passed in 2018, including on matters like a cap on income tax rate, uh, voter ID provision, uh, should be rescinded because the, the General Assembly that proposed them, and we have a sort of routine kind of a constitutional amendment process in this state where it is the legislature that proposes and then it's ratified by the people in a referendum mm-hmm. that the General Assembly that proposed them was uh, unconstitutionally elected because it was elected under what the court had previously um, determined were uh, illegal gerrymandered maps. So that brings up the question of not only are courts starting to talk about making legislatures redrawing maps or redrawing them themselves because they think they're unconstitutional, unfair, partisan gerrymanders. But also the the argument that anything that was passed into law by those legislative bodies under those maps that have now been found unconstitutional itself sh- th- th- those pieces of legislation themselves should be rescinded. Mm-hmm. And that is a, you know that is a massive a Pandora's box um, mm-hmm. that to me is intriguing as a political scientist, but I think to, to um, elected officials and, and others is, is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can see why, why that would be. If we could just turn a bit to this shift in legal cha- in the area of legal challenges from race to partisanship, but in, in your essay, you wrote about how, you know, it used to be the case that the minority party uh, would generally, you said, shoulder on uh, and recognizing a need to alter policy positions and strategically recruit and finance moderate, talented candidates if they were to win seats. And then you say that this has ceased to be the case. And um, instead of just trying to figure out how to win next time, um, these lawsuits about partisan gerrymandering are, are tend to be the response and they're, yeah. you know, launched and funded and backed by national, uh, national groups and, you know, partisans from different organizations and from kind of the national party apparatus. So yeah, it, it, if you could just, yeah, comment maybe on the significance of, of this, this shift uh, yeah. that, that's, that's yeah. happened. Yeah, so I think, you know, obviously partisan polarization plays a huge role here. So mm-hmm. I, I, I talk about some examples from previous decades, 60s, 70s, I think, in which uh, there were accusations made about the majority party in the state legislature had gerrymandered these districts for its own benefit. Um, and, you know, the, the minority party... Uh, sort of is in a huff and, and very upset about it, but doesn't do anything about it in a legal sense and tries to respond uh, by looking at the district map and saying, okay, you know, what we need to do in these this particular district is sort of run this kind of candidate. Um, it's, it's a, you know, we're Democrats, slightly conservative district, but we think we can win with the right kind of Democrat, what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I give examples. I think there's you know a good example in the, in the 70s and 80s are uh, states like um, 
Arizona and Colorado, where Democrats came out of, believed that there was Republican gerrymandering going on and came out of those decades in, in, in a strong position, largely because they understood that they um, needed to appeal more to younger voters and, and Latinos, and, and they did a really good job recruiting sort of candidates for specific districts. And, new, and um, Republicans did the same in New York in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the parties, as a result of polarization, to, and, and which they are complicit in this process as well, not, they're not just not innocent victims of polarization in American society. The political parties themselves manipulate the situation and, and are part of the, you know, of the cause as well. Um, don't want to do that anymore. You know, they just don't want to, uh, they don't have the ideological flexibility, the ideological breadth. They don't care about local circumstances. They don't want to try to recruit particular people who might be outside the party orthodoxy, but still, you know, consider themselves Democrats or Republicans and are really well suited to a district. They just don't want to do that anymore. What they they decide they want to do is, um, and to a certain extent, I can see that they're you know captive to their own label, their their own brand. But but they're just not interested in doing that anymore. They they'll, they'll go to the courts. And of course, what has happened over the the past few cycles is that um, law firms associated with both of the political parties, uh, mainly in, in New York and Washington and on the West Coast, have uh, become incredibly sophisticated. They go across the country. Um, hiring experts, and you know, I I put my hand up here and 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 <laughs> say I'm part of that, I guess, um, and and go to the courts uh, as a way of trying to uh, relieve themselves of their minority situation, rather than going out there and and, and winning elections. Mm-hmm. And, and it's become and the courts are giving them a, 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 the light. The courts are giving them is getting greener and greener all the time. Yeah. Yeah, Andy. So let's return to the uh, the independent state legislature theory uh, we opened up with. Um, you know, you yeah. write that it has the potential to save the American model of redistricting, kind of what you've been talking about. That it's really you know legislatures and the people's representatives who should kind of have the sole responsibility for this process, not the lawyers and judges and technical people you've been talking about who kind of want to take command of it for their own ends. Um, but you know, as you said, if the Supreme Court rules against North Carolina's Republican leadership and more v. Harper the court could kind of quash ISL before it even really gets going. Um, you know, give us kind of the the summary of your thesis about why this, this would be bad for American democracy to totally reject this theory and this idea that it should be legislators who control redistricting. So, well, I mean, obviously, legislators are elected officials. Um, they're through a democratic process. Often judges are not. That's not the case in North Carolina, as I said, but it is sure. the case. It's the case at the federal level, of course. The, it, it also, as I said, having taking the redistricting process out of their hands in in many ways makes uh, the need to try to bring yourself out of um, minority status through self reflection. Uh, through uh, changing of position on important policies in the mm-hmm. recruitment of the kind, kind of candidates the people of a state want, it, it, it relieves you of that. Uh, and this is an important, I think, feedback mechanism in democratic politics mm-hmm. that 
defeated political parties um, don't go just go to the courts or don't double down on what they did in the previous cycle yeah. or re- recent cycles. They they change and sort of say, look, the people of this state uh, are want this now, and um, we should start to try to give them more of this. And 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 as I said, I think once we move away from a legislature centric redistricting model, there are going to be fewer and fewer incentives for this to happen. Um, and this is going to increasingly add to polarization. And, and by the way, you know, a lot of people sort of are concerned that this kind of redistricting actually leads to polarization right. rather than is a, it, 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 you know, is um, going to be snuffed out by polarization. But, you know, a lot of the, the re- political science research on polarization says this is, you know, not really the case. There are other culprits. And and perhaps the best piece of evidence for this is the U.S. Senate, which by definition, of course, is not redistricted, mm-hmm. never been redistricted. And most of the indicators that we have of congressional behavior is that senators, Republicans and Democrats in the Senate are as polarized as they are in the U.S. House <laughs> and in, in other in, and in state legislatures. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, and, and I think what unfortunately what's happening is that that people are really don't seem to care particularly about the model anymore, um, and they what what they really want is what they perceive as uh, best for their own party's interests, and r- wrapped up in a kind of facade of fairness, mm-hmm. and, and moving us away from those as a small D democratic roots. Mm. So uh, we thought we might want to conclude with some predictions. Um, so how do you think the Supreme Court will rule in Moore v. Harper? And uh, how do you anticipate that ruling affect, how do you, how do you think it'll affect the future of redistricting? Well, you know, this, this is the hardest part. It's, <laughs> um, you know, uh, um, I mean, I think obviously a lot of people on the left are concerned and possibly rightly so, um, about the fact that the court will uh, embrace ISL. I think in the oral argument, um, I think people on the left were a little bit perhaps pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. by what they were reading in the tea leaves in the oral argument about where the justices would line up. Uh, but I still think, you know, given the, the makeup of the court currently, um, they, you know, we think that maybe the court will be supportive of of, of ISL, um, and and of course, then the focus would be on this idea of the twenty twenty four presidential election, and will state legislatures try to reverse um, the courses set by the, their voters and, mm-hmm. and and replace electors and all that kind of stuff. Um, with regards to redistricting, so so I, I guess I'm. I'm thinking that they might they might hedge greatly somehow and sort of say, well, you know, this we don't really want this to to be applied to um, uh, presidential elections. Maybe it's really focused more on the Article One stuff and 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 congressional redistricting. I don't know, uh, but I will say that regardless of how they find on this, in this particular case. I do think that, you know, the, the momentum is clearly um, against uh, legislative centric, centric redistricting. Mm-hmm. 
and states are increasingly uh, going to in commissions. States are increasingly writing in language about redistricting and what map district maps should look like in a partisan way within their constitutions. Um, I, I I think that you know it to ward this off it might be best and and North Carolina would need to amend its constitution obviously but perhaps a a good solution that would would placate some some people who are critical of, of the position I set out in the essay would be you know let's just have um redistricting uh as regular legislation in North Carolina so the governor has a veto it is interesting by the way that that it was democrats who didn't want when the gubernatorial veto was established in North Carolina after a referendum in 1996. It was Democrats who wanted to keep redistricting out mm-hmm. and 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 have it purely the domain of the General Assembly. And I think the thinking there was Republicans are more likely to win gubernatorial elections than majorities in the General Assembly. And of course, mm-hmm. they've done both, but but they right. they were they were kind of not predicting that very well. Um, but if you had the, if you had the, the governor in there, then sort of during times of divided government, you still got a redistricting done by elected officials. Yeah. Uh, but there is this to, to please those who worry about partisan bias. You know, you, you've got the two parties working together to try to, to create some maps. Sure. Yeah, Andy, I mean, it's definitely a technical process, but it's important for democracy. And we'll definitely be watching how the Supreme Court case goes. And we thank you for your essay and for coming on to kind of shed some light and help us walk us through these issues. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you both very much. If you'd like to read Andrew's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com. Consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. You can find more episodes of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.